Welcome to the Type Slay podcast, the show that is for women by women. Type Slay is meant for any woman who is looking to unlock their potential, needs motivation, or is just looking to find a community of like-minded Type Slay women. I'm Jane Dufresne. And I'm Carly Bell. This week on the Type Slay podcast, we have a very special guest. To wrap up our Mental Health Awareness Month, we have Melissa Laundry Petty joining us on this week's episode. Melissa is a licensed professional counselor certified in eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy, also known as EMDR. She is the founder and owner of Body and Mindfully Healthy, which is a private group practice based out of Southwest Virginia with two locations. She has been licensed by Virginia's Board of Counseling since 2015 and graduated with a master's degree in clinical psychology from Radford University in 2008. Melissa is a Virginia Board of Counseling approved supervisor who has been providing clinical supervision for residents in counseling and qualified mental health professionals since 2017. In her professional career, she has treated children, adolescents, and adults who have struggled with trauma, depression, anxiety, and addiction. Melissa is also an avid runner and has been since 2013. She finds healing, strength, resilience, and endurance within running and other types of exercise in the outdoors, which helps her to carry these lessons into her professional and personal daily life. We are continuing to celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month. And we have Melissa Petty on the podcast with us today. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is awesome. We are so excited. Melissa is the founder and owner of Body and Mindfully Healthy. Melissa, do you want to just give us a quick little overview about your business? Sure. It's a group private practice that offers mental health therapy services And currently we have um, myself, who is a licensed professional counselor, and then another licensed professional counselor who's part-time. And we have multiple residents and counselors um, in counseling. They are going under supervision, under my supervision, towards earning their license. And they provide just as quality of care as I do. They are learning, but they are fully trained and supervised. Awesome. When did you start your business? I started it in 2021. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was just me at the beginning. Um, I was the only therapist. And then I was approached by um, another therapist who wanted to do some telehealth and was looking to see about private practice. That was about four months into starting the business. And then I had another therapist reach out and (laughs) kind of grew from there. They both did telehealth until... I realized I needed a building because I was, I needed some place to put people and to have more people to come in. Um, and then I, I bought a building here in Galax and it has four offices and those offices are now full. We're wow. hiring another therapist and um, I'm going to, we're just going to have to share offices. And then we've recently, I've recently expanded to um, rent an office in Abingdon, Virginia. So now we have two locations which um, there's just a huge need for and a demand for mental health services right now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming at times, but I know that we're offering a a great service to the community. And two, the biggest thing that I'm proud of is that one of the therapists that started with me in 2021 via telehealth 
I helped and coached her to start her own private practice. And now she has her own private practice in Blacksburg, Virginia. So it's like, amazing. yeah, it's so in that I'm so proud of that just because it's like, you know, you're, you got your little baby, but then you let someone else and you help someone else grow their own little baby. And it's just a really special thing. Absolutely. Why did you go into business on your own? Were you with another practice with other therapists or tell me your journey? Okay. So I actually graduated from Radford University in 2008, and I immediately went into the community mental health system and started working with um, Mount Rogers Community Services. And I worked there for 13 years. So I I was there, did a variety of different jobs. I worked in crisis. I worked in the school systems as a school counselor. I did outpatient. And then I eventually transitioned into a program manager and then a director where I created new programs for for parents who were struggling with substance abuse issues and helping to regain custody of their children. So I kind of got to a point where like, I've done a lot in that system and I'm looking to do something different. And I've really found a home in private practice. And so Melissa, you are based out of Gaelic's and now you have a second location in Abingdon, but you offer virtual services. So really anyone in the state of Virginia can work with you, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And any of the therapists in the the practice. That's amazing. So Jane and I have talked a lot about mental health on our podcast, and it seems like it comes up a lot with our guests as well. So we were like, okay, you know, we can share our personal journeys, but let's bring on an expert to actually (laughs) chat with our listeners. I think, you know, Jane, did you have any other questions before we jump into our topic of the day? What? I was going to ask you, uh, what's the ratio between in-person visits and virtual um, clients? I would say for me, it's probably about 50-50. Um, okay. For other therapists, it, it, they're more generally in-person. So it's probably like 60-40, but it's a okay. even split. Okay. That's that's nice. And then, um, so that seems like it's changed. I was saying in a different discussion with Carly, how um, we have office buildings and we would build them out for for mental health professionals. And then there's been kind of a reversal of not wanting to be in the office, but being um, online and doing telehealth. So I just was curious about your clientele and how that's that's changed maybe during COVID or just during the, the evolution of people being more comfortable virtually talking to a doctor. Right. Yeah. I think with COVID, we all had to make that big adjustment to going to a telehealth services. I, I did all telehealth throughout COVID until, you know, eventually returning to in-person visits. And then I, I, I like that hybrid. I've, you know, I've really don't see myself only being a telehealth therapist. Um, just because I feel like there's, it's a different feel having someone in your office, but I enjoy both. And I think that there's value in both and it just depends on the therapist and the client and what their preferences are. Yeah. And some people that can't physically get to you because of, you know, personal issues, you're still available. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, Carly, take it away. I think I had one more question there. Um, um, Oh, Melissa, were you offering telehealth services before COVID or was that something? Well, I guess you opened in 2021 in the midst of COVID, right? So I guess before you opened your um, own business, were you do, had you done telehealth before or was that something that really hadn't impacted your industry yet? Well, really what happened, what there were some therapists who did telehealth prior to COVID. They were very few and far between because there was a lot of restrictions as far as like insurance reimbursement. So it was mainly therapists who um, did private pay. 
And so there was just a very small percentage of therapists that I knew that did telehealth pre-COVID. So I had never had any experience doing telehealth before COVID happened. And it was like, you know, a really quick, like, let's all figure it out. And I think that was very standard for all the therapists uh, in this field, because we, we can't just not show up for our clients. Like that's not a reality. We have to show up. It's part of our ethical code. Not showing up is medical neglect and that's not okay. Mm-hmm. So we, we all just kind of figured it out as we went. And it was kind of like a little bit of like the wild west. Like we're all asking each other, like, how do you do this? Or how do you do that? What's the <laughs> ethics on this? And, you know, looking for those research resources that, that had already been, you know, written prior to COVID who, for some of the people who were forward thinking and thinking that this could be the future of, of mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people, <laughs> most therapists um, weren't doing telehealth prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anxiety is a common thing that comes up in a lot of our conversations. And it's kind of amazing. You know, I think we've had just a couple of conversations with people where some source of anxiety hasn't come up, whether it's social anxiety or even, you know, negative self, self-talk, self imposter syndrome. Those are all common things that come up in a lot of our conversations. So, you know, and Melissa, we hope to have you on to, to cover several topics in the future. But Today, specifically, we're talking about tips for how high-achieving women can overcome their anxiety. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we're curious to know, you know, high-achieving women, it seems to be a common theme. There's some, you know, anxiety, maybe some negative self-talk, you know, things like that. And is it really about overcoming your anxiety or living, living with your anxiety? I think that's probably a pretty key thing there as well. Well, we can't expect to have a life without anxiety. So I think that's the the main takeaway is that anxiety and stress is always going to be a part of our life. And it is learning how we can really think about the way that we view our anxiety and the way that we view ourselves and how we can manage those feelings and those thoughts that might pop up. But I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that anxiety is a very common thing coming up in your podcast, um, you know, women are twice as likely to experience anxiety than men and be diagnosed. Why is that? Um, I, I would say that it has a lot to do with genetics and then it also has a lot to do with societal expectations. Um, and previously anxiety was classified. Well, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder was classified as an anxiety disorder. And so, they've now moved it over to trauma related disorders, but a lot of times anxiety is connected to traumatic experiences. And a lot of us do have those experiences, whether we're aware of them or not, because some of them could be very big T traumas and other ones can be very small T traumas. So we're all getting these messages from society and we're all getting these messages from our families. And sometimes those messages can be a little bit traumatic. And so when we're children, it's like we're building the foundation of our thoughts and our self image. And sometimes we're not very much aware of what's been said to us and how it impacts impacts us later, but that's generally the foundation of anxiety. And I think generally women um, are taught to be people pleasers and we're very much taught to make sure everyone's happy and all of our emotions are controlled. And if you have all those dynamics coming into play and you're told that over and over again, like you would have a little bit more anxiety compared to males. 
who are encouraged to express anger, their primary emotion, <laughs> even though it's not a primary emotion, but it's acceptable for them to be angry, where females, it's not acceptable for us to be angry. So that usually comes out as anxiety instead of anger. Okay. So it's um, interesting that you say that about, you know, childhood and upbringing, because Jane and I have talked a lot about the differences in our generations. So Jane, you are a, you're Gen X, right? I am Gen X and, and I, I actually, well, you go finish and I'll, then I'll go. No, I was just, so she's a Gen X and I'm a millennial. And it's funny because I, I never realized how dramatically different you know, that generation, the parenting that you received and kind of the things that you've talked about on the podcast. Yeah. Parenting in seventies and eighties. I think I saw a meme recently that said something to the effect of you're a Gen Xer, you were raised to be independent, but you're still in a traditional household where the roles were a certain way where women did most of the housework. So now we're, we're adult females who hold down jobs, but are expected or have found uh, spouses who expect us to also run the household. So we're really double whammy and and it is a lot of stress and anxiety. And and also that generation, which was Dr. Spock. And so we have a lot of insecurities and also, uh, well, I won't even get into it, but you know, you <laughs> the Xers um, and difference from Carly, whose parents were super supportive and like, just, you could, I don't know. I mean, I, ha- it, I, cer- I, won't. I certainly had my own struggles, but not being, not being told that I couldn't, being told that I couldn't do something was never one of them. Like it was always kind of like the sky's the limit for me. And Jane, it sounds like it was kind of the opposite for you and kind of like the, what would yeah, you don't, think? Right. Don't overextend yourself. Um, Just fall into line. My, my father did not want us to just grow up and get our MRS like our mom did. He wanted us to get a job and work, but he's also very traditional that the woman makes the meals and does the grocery shopping and makes the beds and does the laundry. So it's like my sister and I talk about being kind of trapped in this. We don't know. We don't know what we are or what we're supposed to do. And we have both of us, my sister and I have anxiety disorders. She's a procrastinator and I'm a perfectionist. And we always laugh about that must have happened in our childhood. Something must have been going on that we are responding to. (laughs) We can laugh about it now, but. Yeah, but that's, I mean, it's it's very true that those messages that you get in childhood really do inform your, how you cope with these feelings and, you know, what messages you take on as your self-image. And um, I think that what you're describing is really like the basis of high functioning anxiety or high achieving uh, or women with high achieving anxiety, because like you're, you're told you need to do it all. Basically, you need to take care of the house, you need to have a, a successful career. And you need to do all that perfectly without any help. And from the outside looking in, everyone thinks you're confident and strong, you're forward moving, you're goal oriented, you always have it together. Um, you're a type A person. And they will always comment, I just don't know how you do it. Um, and then whenever someone says something like that, I'm, I kind of have a little joke that I say, well, maybe it's Maybelline or maybe it's anxiety. <laughs> I, they can't stop because then everything falls apart. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we don't want the, the neighbors to find out that we're not perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Because then the image is, you know, tarnished and, you know, you're not that perfect person anymore who has it all together. And it's like, where did we get that message that says that we had to be that person? Why can't we be authentic? Why can't we show up as a mess sometimes? Because that's 
the humanity. Like we are all humans and we need to remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I so, feel like mm-hmm. Carly is very open and happy and relaxed, even though she talks about her anxiety. I would never have known that she had any anxiety until we started to become more friendly versus just business friends and then decided to do this podcast. It just would never have occurred to me because she has it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I've talked a lot about, I mean, I have a great team. I have a great therapist. I have, you know, access to coping skills and medication and different things that I have, you know, put together in my toolkit that helps me live with my anxiety. And one of the things that I've learned is that it's not like I am not anxiety. I'm I'm not overcoming my anxiety. My anxiety is always going to be there. And anxiety is actually a good thing. It's helped us, you know as cavemen and women to not, you know, come face to face with a lion and, you know, live and it it provides like intuition in a sense, I think. But, you know, Melissa, I said this on one of our other episodes and I think that it was, it's kind of silly, but I have two dogs, Jackson Birdie, and Birdie was born in a really traumatic situation. Like somebody had dumped her mom on the side of the road while she was in active labor. And so Birdie's entrance into the world was really traumatic. And Jax is like a champion bloodline golden retriever. So like two very different experiences. And it dawned on me one day, there was a thunderstorm. And, you know, so both of my dogs were facing the exact same situation. Like a thunderstorm's happening. And Birdie was interpreting it as, oh, my God, like, this is it. It's just going down, like, you know, freaking out and, like, trembling. And Jax just kind of stops and is like, hmm, I hear that thunder. And then he just goes about his business. And I'm just like, wow, that is, like, exactly what anxiety is. Like, some people are just, like, wired to interpret it situations differently and you can be interpreting the same situation and one person is interpreting it as like this is a half threat situation even if it's not and then the other person for whatever reason is just not interpreting it like that right and you'll notice that one of your dogs is more hyper vigilant than, than the other like the the one that has the anxiety is going to be looking constantly for that threat or that danger there's going to be this hyper alertness and so that is a lot like with anxiety in humans too. Like you're, you are hypervigilant. You're looking for what's going to fall apart next. Um, and the reality of, of life is that there, we can't eliminate uncertainty. Something is going to fall apart and we're robbing ourselves a lot of happiness and joy by focusing and looking for the things that are, are going to fall apart. Um, right instead of just enjoying the things that are okay right now. Mm -hmm. Can you give our listeners some tips or ways to reframe your thinking when someone's facing a situation that's stressful? Yeah. um, I think it's really important just to name it, to tame it. So calling out the, what it is like, I'm feeling anxious. Like this is what I'm feeling anxious about and talk to someone about how you're feeling. It doesn't even matter if it's a text or it's a phone call, but just the fact of acknowledging that says like, I feel anxious about this. 
Like it doesn't even matter what the response is. Just saying it out loud lets you put a label on it. So then it becomes a lot more manageable. I feel like when you suppress it and like you keep it like a secret, it like grows into this like anxiety monster. And, you know, it's like just this like little secret that's just festering. Right. And that that festering then also creates a lot of shame because then like you hold it for so long. Like, how do you tell people that inside you feel like an imposter and you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop because you feel so overwhelmed that you're not sure even how you do it? Mm -hmm. I think that was something we talked about with the Brene Brown book. did we read about it when she's like looking over her child's um, crib yes. and instead of being really happy, she starts to freak out like what could go wrong. Yes. And I feel like we as women specifically do that a lot instead of finding the joy in our situation. We say, well, I've had way too much joy lately. So something's probably going to go wrong. Yes. And mm-hmm. I, and I, that's something for me too. Like it almost, it's almost like, um, Sometimes I won't let myself be fully happy in whatever it is going on out of like the fear of it being like taken away from me or like losing that person or something. Right. But ultimately, I think we have to return to the the fact, which is kind of a scary fact to admit, is that eventually we do lose everyone and one way or another. And so we have to get comfortable with that so that way we can then say, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. Me focusing on it is not going to change anything. So if I can redirect my attention to what is here, right here, right now, and use mindfulness and be in the moment with this person, I'm going to have a lot more memories to hold on to and cherish when eventually that person's no longer in my life one way or another. And so it is a sad fact to kind of sit with, and it's very uncomfortable at first when you start sitting with that but it does have a lot of freedom in it too. So that way you let go of the fear of, of loss because loss is inevitable. And so then that helps you, you lean into the happy moment or the appreciate, you know, like Brene Brown leaning over her child's crib. And instead of worrying about something happening to them or, you know, losing them, she's able to lean in more and be present and happier in the moment. So then what do you say to women that are high achieving, working women, parents have you know, responsibilities at home. I mean, what do you say to someone that comes to you and says, I'm so overwhelmed, I have no life balance, or I don't know where to start? I know that that's probably a very generic question, but I'm sure you see a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it really comes down to practicing self-care. Like, so, so one would be, if you're feeling really overwhelmed, let's sit down and, and prioritize everything that you have on your plate. Like, what's number one, usually it's family and kids. And number two, like it it can be anything, but we want to make sure that we have a list of all the things that we're responsible for, for all the things in our life. And then we want to prioritize them and make space for those things. Because I kind of think of it as like, we all have these spinning plates and some plates are very, very precious. We do not want them to fall and break, but other plates can fall and break and it's okay. So by prioritizing our responsibilities, we know which plates we don't ever let fall and we know what plates we do let fall because we can't be superwoman or wonder woman and do it all. We can do anything, but we cannot do everything. So we're going to have to prioritize. I think that's a big, yeah, I think that's a big (laughs) thing for, you know, our type slay audience. I, I absolutely think that that's something that our audience probably struggles with. Mm hmm. 
but yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is like making that list of what's the priority and then how do we put you back in on that list? Cause I think a lot of times with high achieving women, we don't make the list. Everything else does, but where are we in it? And we lose sight of who we are because then we become our achievements or our roles instead of really taking care of ourselves. And so if we're not taking care of ourselves and we're just focusing on the achievements, we're just focused on goals, we're just focused on our roles in other people's lives, eventually that's going to lead to burnout and that's going to lead to things falling apart, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes things need to fall apart in order for you to rebuild and find yourself again. But it uh, is, is definitely more comfortable if you can <laughs> focus on yourself and take care of yourself before that happens. Um, but I really... It, it is like a huge piece of knowing who you are and what you need. Tell me some examples of self-care. Cause I think to myself, like a massage or a facial, but is it time with friends? Is it like walking or exercising? What do you give people to do for self-care? It really can be anything, but I like to start with basics. Like, are you drinking enough water? Because oh. if you're dehydrated, it could increase your anxiety. Oh, are you eating regularly? Because if you're not eating regularly, that could increase your anxiety. Um, are you monitoring your caffeine intake? Because if you're drinking too much, that can increase anxiety. Um, are you exercising in any form? It doesn't matter what it looks like. Moving your body in some way, because that's mm -hmm. going to release the endorphins in your body um, to then reduce your stress. So you're much better able to handle it when it happens. Um, so I like to start off with those basics, but really it's like, where do you find joy? Where do you find peace? Where do you find, um, self-reflection so you can get to know yourself more. And some people find it in, you know, journaling. Some people find it in yoga. Some people find it in more community. It depends on their personality and what brings them joy and brings them peace. So I have an interesting thing to share in regards to self-care and, you know, looking after yourself. A friend of mine, um, Shay, she uh, sent a meme to me a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was so interesting. It was basically um, the whole kind of premise of it was that, you know, you everybody knows you can't pour from an empty cup, right? But she, I, we had always interpreted that as, well, you have to fill your cup up so you can empty it out again and pour it into other people. And this meme was actually about well, no, you continue to fill your cup up and then the overflow is what everybody oh. else can get. And I was okay. like, huh, that's another way to look at it that I did not, I never interpreted it that way. And I thought that was a really good way to think about it. That is because it's saying that you're giving people um, the abundance that you have. Yeah. Rather than what you have inside of you, even mm -hmm. the extra, the bonus. We're all in different stages too. I have two teenagers and work and all that stuff. And so sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry that you get the bottom of the barrel of me. And I don't know how you tell, what, what do you tell women or other people? Like, how do you, I, I'm, well, I probably should repeat this question, but when someone's feeling like they're giving someone a tiny sliver, is it okay for certain periods of your life to to the pie would change. The slices would change. Like right now it's kids and work and then philanthropy and all this stuff. And then there's like 
husband? Is that bad? Should you say, wait, 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 you need to get rid of some of the philanthropic stuff and give more to your spouse? Every relationship is like a bank. Yeah. And so we have, we have like the, with those long-term like romantic relationships, you got a lot in the bank usually, but years and years and years of not making deposits, eventually the bank runs out and it breaks. And so we've got to look at our relationships. Like I need to continually be putting some money in the bank to make yeah. sure that I, this relationship stays good because yeah. you don't want to get to the, like the end when the kids are gone. And it's just like, I don't even know you. What are we yeah. doing? Like I, we never spent time together and I'm so burnt out from parenting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that would be the same for like friendships and family. You need to put exactly. in. Okay. Exactly. Because really our relationships, um, they are like the fundamental piece. They they're, they're foundational. And so if we want them to be long lasting, we've, we've got to put the time and the effort into them, yeah. uh, make those slices bigger, um, and see where you can reduce some other things. It's great to be a philanthropist. It's great to be dedicated to work. And how can you delegate to let other people take a portion of those slices? So it's not all you like, yeah, yeah. you're important and your marriage is important. No, it's awesome. And we we spend a lot of time together. I just feel like he always gets the the me that's exhausted and spent. And like, he is so nice to me and lovely. But I always think I probably should make some bigger deposits. <laughs> because I mean, I have people that I know that whose kids grow up and they leave the house. My parents separated when I went to college because I was a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was so like overwhelming for them just to be together and not have the dramatic Jane in the house anymore. I was the youngest and the last to leave. And I, well, um, let's just stop right there and reframe that because um, I think that you were probably just more sensitive and more like communicative about what was going on. And they labeled it as dramatic. But thank you. Anything was wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. I love myself, but a lot of people, it's too much. <laughs> No, I don't. I think we got to reframe those things of thinking that we're too much or, or even not enough. I think we have to say, you know, there's some, there's some big, big benefits to being a sensitive person and feeling all the feelings and then talking about it. And we need to give ourselves credit and give you credit for that. That's a good thing. So do you, the Gen X generation, Jane, do you feel like there was much more of a stigma around therapy and mental health? Oh my gosh, yes. No one even talked about it, much less went. My mother, my mother, my grandmother committed suicide. My uncle committed suicide. We did not speak about it. Wow. Ask why or what or anything. It was just, mm-mm. and I remember um, calling my dad after my first divorce when I was 24 and saying, um, I don't want to end up like your mom who had been married four times and then took her life. Um, Cause I felt like I was going crazy, but we didn't talk about it. And, and even in intake appointments for our kids, there's mental health on both sides of the kids, you know, mom and dad. And I'm very forward about talking about it where even their dad, who's older than I am, doesn't mention it. So I do think it's always like, it just wasn't, it wasn't talked about. No one even, I never even knew what a therapist was mm. going up. I mean, we were, I'm from a small town too, but really when I went to college, there was the health center 
and you could go to see a counselor, but I had never heard of one and didn't know what that was. <laughs> so Melissa, so, do, yeah. you, do you find that, is that pretty common? And, you know, the, the generational differences that you see, is that pretty common with Gen X, you know, and then how, how do you, what's the difference between, you know, their perspective and what you see working with, you know, millennials? Um, typically with millennials or the Gen Z, um, they, everyone's in therapy. Like it's so normal that most people they know are in therapy. And so more for millennials, like they're kind of in between, like their parents aren't in therapy. They wish they were, um, but their friends are in therapy. So there's that, but a lot of the Gen X and boomers, like they're the only ones in therapy that they know of sometimes. And that can be really isolating and difficult. I feel like for me, I am so like hands-on, like I, I want to get better in whatever area of my life that is. And so if there's a resource or a tool out there for me to feel better, to, you know, learn how to live with my anxiety, I'm all in. Like, I want the tools. I want the coaching. Like, help me help myself. And I feel like, you know, Jane, it makes me sad that you got that, you know, your generation didn't get to feel that. Yeah, I mean, maybe some people that were in larger cities or more sophisticated had. I mean, I've been to therapy before. That's another thing I want to touch on. I, I, I've had a couple of therapists that really didn't feel like a great match, but I felt guilty or I didn't know how to end the relationship. Or you know, that just seems like nowadays you can say, "Oh, it's not working out," and switch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could be a generational is that thing a, too. Is like, that a people-pleasing <laughs> yes. symptom? Well, I think it's it's hard to deliver some some difficult news and have those hard conversations. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully a lot of therapists are, are coming into that therapeutic relationship talking about like saying like, if you feel like therapy with me is not going well, please let me know what you'd like to see different or like me to do differently. Cause this is all about you. And I'm going to make sure I'm going to be the best therapist for you as possible, but I need that feedback from you. So that way people are comfortable sharing and they're like, well, I would like more homework or I would like you to be more directive or I need you to challenge me or confront me more. And then that's an easy conversation because you've already kind of opened the door for them to give you that feedback. And yeah. I'm always like super grateful because I'm like, yes, like that's exactly what I want for you is to be able to communicate your needs and yeah. then have someone who says, absolutely, I can do that because that's a whole new experience for a lot of people that they didn't get in childhood. Yeah. I wanted someone to tell me exactly what to do and to say. <laughs> <laughs> if only, we could I know. <laughs> but they could ask lots of questions to help you figure it out. I know, I know. But Carly always always seems like she's embracing and able to kind of figure things out herself and and the support is better for her where I was like, okay, I don't know what to talk about or I don't want to reveal mm. the true situation because we were raised to be have this kind of facade of perfection, at least you know, my my case. Not that this is a therapy session for me. Well, but. and too, like it looks at it, there's that comes into play of like family roles because there's different roles that children play in families. And for example, um, the golden child, so is usually the high achiever who makes the family look good. And if you're the golden child who's always making the family look good by your achievements, then you don't talk about what's wrong with you and you don't talk about what's wrong with the family mm. because then you'll reveal the secret that things aren't the way they actually appear on the outside. 
And I think when you take on that role too, you find yourself trying to take care and fix everybody else in the family too. Right. Because you got to maintain the image. Right. What about birth order? Do you see certain traits in like the oldest child and then the youngest child and the middle child? Yeah. Typically the oldest is the golden child, but not always. Sometimes it'll flip-flop. The middle child um, is usually the scapegoat. Um, the one who gets in trouble a lot and has, like, gets a lot of the attention from everyone in the family. Um, and then the third child or um, the other children can be um, either the joker or the lost child. So the joker is kind of like the one who's always cracking jokes and making things light, and it's really funny. Um, and then the lost child is just ignored. Like they don't say anything and they just kind of keep themselves and no one really talks to them and they're kind of on their own. Carly, what order are you in? Is your brother older? Well, clearly I'm the golden child. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am the oldest. I, I'm the youngest. <laughs> and I was the black sheep. I actually was not a high achiever. And I think my parents thought I would end up in jail. So I feel like I've kind of like made up for time um, proving everyone wrong. And we've talked about that on other podcasts. So it, it is funny that my older sister is the golden child and she tends to be very quiet and non-expressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like I am definitely like a, a high achiever for sure. But, you know, my brother is also, you know, like my mom's like baby. And yeah. so like he has, he has that going for him. <laughs> hmm. This is totally on a different tangent, but speaking of boy versus girl, do you find c- clients of yours that come in that are male? I mean, have the issues with mom? Like I have twins, boy, girl, twins, mm-hmm. and I have always been harder on my daughter. Like I expect so much from her and I find myself babying my son Mm. and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's so weird. I just Uh do it naturally. Like I, she's independent and she can do a lot of stuff by herself and always has done that. And so I'm like, expect her to handle it. And then her, him, I'm like, let me help you. Let me help you. And now he's a little bit helpless. And I'm like, oh shit. Um, (laughs) I got to put him in boot camp because here he is 16 and I'm like, where's the washing machine? So mm-hmm. I don't know if you see that in your practice or if I'm just an anomaly. I mean, I think it it's just different, um, different dynamics and different families. It, it's interesting to see kind of how it plays out. Cause I've seen, um, like I, I work with both children and adults and I've seen kids and both males and females who were super anxious and needed a lot of help. Like some you know, female children who weren't independent, like your daughter, um, they needed that reassurance, like your son needs. Um, so it's, I think it just depends on like the family dynamics and maybe, Mm -hmm. and maybe even like how on, and I'm a mother as well. And I can definitely relate to what you're saying. Cause I think I might do the same thing with my daughter, but I wonder how much of that would be my own projection of my own expectations for me onto her. And oh, I yeah. don't have that same thing for my son because I'm not male. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that maybe dads have that projection on their sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I say, yeah, and agree. And I don't have children. But <laughs> I imagine that I would be the same way. And I feel like it would be coming from my own bias and knowing what I went through in life. And I would want, you know, to equip her with, you know, the tools that she needed and, the, and you know, to know that she has the strength you know, to get through, Mm -hmm. you know, similar things that I went through. 
Well, and I think that's the, that's a great thing because you're, what you're essentially doing is you're taking that awareness of yourself and you're saying like, how can I use this to benefit someone else? How can I use this to benefit my daughter or benefit my yeah. son? And then finding like that balance where it's like, oh, okay, well maybe I'm, I'm having that awareness that some of my own insecurities, I might be putting onto them. And I think that the awareness is really the key piece is that knowing what you've been ex- exposed to and what you've experienced and then how that might be coming out in your parenting for better or for worse. Cause I think all of these things can have really great qualities and lead to a stronger, more resilient person. Um, but too much of anything can be harmful too. Yep. Yeah. Talk about, I mean, parenting is super anxiety ridden mm-hmm. for me. Like I just don't want to make a mistake. And then I make all these mistakes and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then so you get to Yeah, but that's where the beautiful thing about reframing comes in. Like we can reframe that to say like, I'm so scared and it's causing me anxiety that I'm going to make a mistake. Let's reframe that and get back into that very uncomfortable place and that truth of I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes. And so if we can just acknowledge that and accept that I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes, then I can reframe those times that I do make mistakes in my parenting because then I can say, I'm showing them, I'm modeling, like I'm human one. I well, that's mistakes, true. And they're going to make mistakes too. I'm going to tell them that I made a mistake. You are going to make mistakes like this in the future. And I'm going to be the person who comes to you and says, look, I really messed up. Here's my apology. And I'm so sorry. I'm going to try to do better. So you're teaching them so much in those moments, right? It's okay to make mistakes and you're teaching them how to apologize because there's some, I've had clients who are teenagers come into my office and I made a mistake in, in like a therapy session. Like they were like super tired. I would kept asking lots of questions and they were not having it. And like, I thought about that session later on. I went back to the next session. I was like, you know what? I should have done some more relaxation techniques or like more like calming things and like took a different approach. And I'm really sorry. And they were like, 17 years old. And they said, you're the first adult who's ever apologized to me. And I was like, oh, okay. That's pretty big. Yeah. yeah. My mom always tells me that I would never apologize as a child. And I'm like, well, maybe I never witnessed anyone do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many, so many issues. So wow, getting that's back- so interesting. I'm sitting here trying to think, you know, when, when I've ever heard my parents apologize, kind of an interesting thing to think about <laughs> but we need to because we're all going to make mistakes in our relationships and so if we grew up with parents who never apologize and then we never apologize like how would that feel being in a relationship with that person who makes mistakes and then never apologizes or taking accountability for what they did like how's that gonna work it didn't work out for me <laughs> yeah yeah um so back to just being a working woman or a woman in business or woman who's filled with anxiety, or maybe she's not in business. She's just a homemaker. And we have many audience members. Like what's the first thing when someone's feeling like overwhelmed or anxious, or maybe we've talked in this podcast about having an actual panic attack. Mm-hmm. What do you, what are, what are some, what's the first thing you should do if you're feeling like you're going to lose it? I think the first thing is just to take a deep breath acknowledge how you feel and then practice that self-compassionate self-talk. 
which is, I've kind of been modeling that through this. Yeah. We're going to take that time to say like, I'm a human and I'm, and I'm going to have this human experience. I'm going to have these emotions. I'm going to have stress and anxiety at times. And I'm going to talk to myself. Like I'm my best friend. I'm going to talk to myself. Like I would someone else struggling with the same thing, because I think if we, when we take that step back, we can find the words that we need to calm down. It's so easy for us to do it for other people. Yeah. It takes practice for us to do it for ourselves. And really that, that is like the first, you know, step is really talking yourself and coaching yourself through those moments to know that you're going to be okay and that you're going to get through it because anxiety and our panic attack has never killed anyone. It feels very uncomfortable. It feels like you're going to die. You're not. And <laughs> you, you continuing to like, and go into an anxiety or spiral is going to make things much worse. And so if we, we can take that step back and we can look at how we're feeling and how we're talking to ourselves, you know, we really can practice coming towards that anxiety in a different way and showing up differently for ourselves. And I think that takes a lot of practice because when you are, you know, in the jaws of anxiety and you're like, you know, feeling the symptoms of a panic, panic attack coming on, it's easy to just like rationality goes out the window. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. easy to just let things start to spiral. And so I do think that the more that you practice it and the more you have the awareness, because it's, it's really not easy at first, but I will say like today I had to have two really hard conversations today, um, in, in our company. And, you know, I sat down to have conversation number one and I'm like, huh, I think I can like, I think my heart's about to like pound right on out of my chest. Mm. And I kind of, I sat here for a second. I looked at my Apple watch and I was like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, it is pounding out of my chest. And I just kind of like sat here for a minute and I just like put my hand on my chest and I just like took a couple of deep breaths and, you know, just like said some like positive affirmations and stuff. And a lot of it was about like being human and different things like that. And kind of like, what's the worst that could happen out of this, out of these conversations and, you know, started the conversation and it went fine. And, you know, the next one that I had to have went fine too, without, without the spike in heart rate. <laughs> so I congratulations. think, like, oh, thank you. I do think that the awareness and in the practice, like it really does take a lot of effort. Like if you are somebody that's struggling with anxiety and panic attacks, it, it takes practice for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if you can be aware of what your triggers are, that can be very helpful too. So like, if you know, like uncertainty or doing something new that you've never done before is like a anxiety trigger for you, then, then it's not going to be that surprising when it happens again. Like you're saying like, Oh, it's that feeling again that I get every time I try something new, or I'm really not sure what the future holds. Like, I'm just going to have to coach myself through this and know that it's going to be okay. Cause it always has been like, you've made it through every mm-hmm. situation you've been through so far. You've I made it through a hundred percent of your worst days, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one too. Yeah. And so we really have to remember, you know, everything that we've been through and really give ourselves like that pat on the back and, and being proud of ourselves for what we've survived and what we've made it through. Even if we were a mess when we did it, 
or maybe we weren't a mess and everything went great and we were the the leader and hero that everyone sees us to be. Um, but <laughs> I think we have to give ourselves credit for what we've been through and, and how we've coped and survived thus far, um, mm-hmm. because it can give us that confidence to say like, well, if I could handle that, I could handle this. So I think that's one of the biggest things that helped me realize that I was ready to come off of medication. And and I talked about this in one of our um, mental health episodes for this month, but, you know, I, I kind of like took inventory of all of the things that I'd gone through the last like two years and like the anxiety and the panic attacks and the physical symptoms of anxiety and panic attacks. And I kind of like, you know, looked at all this and was like, huh, all these times I thought that I was having a heart attack or that I needed to, you know, leave wherever I was or just feeling so anxious. It was anxiety 100% of the time because I'm still here, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And so it made me realize, wow, all of this truly is just anxiety. And so like looking at, looking at that and being able to look at it objectively and also looking at you know, like you said, your accomplishments. And I think that that's essential in every aspect of life, you know, business, professional, mental health, because we get so caught up in like the to-do list and, you know, all these things that we've yet to do or accomplish or, you know, check off the list that I feel like we forget to like to celebrate our wins and to celebrate Mm -hmm. all that we've accomplished. Yeah, definitely. And people who do look back on their wins and their accomplishments, they are more successful later on because it's kind of like your scaffolding. Like if you're building like something and you have like one level of the scaffold, you build the next one and then you build the next one and then you build the next one. You have that foundation of all these accomplishments already and you're aware of them and you're looking at like how you went through them and you're proud of yourself. That fuels your confidence for the next thing. Yep. I'm writing notes. (laughs) And that's, that's just really good for the team as well that we work with. I think maybe Carly, we could use that in our individual businesses to help our team mm-hmm. propel forward if they look back and see all the things that they've done. Carly always has taught me something so, um, well, wonderful. I am a negative self-talker. Always have been, you know, the way I was raised. Let's be. Let's criticize. Criticize. Always has been, but not always will be. Right. And she <laughs> gave me the best advice. She's like, "How could you be dumb if you've gotten to where you are in this career and you've yeah. done these things and you've accomplished these things?" I'm like, "I don't know," because someone told me I was dumb, and so I've been like fighting that demon for my whole life. But it's so true. If you don't believe in yourself, you can just say, "Wait a minute, look at all the stuff I've done. It's proof that I'm not whatever, or I am whatever." So right. sometimes just sitting back and write, writing down the facts can help you with your perspective of yourself. Right. And then you can take it a step further and decide what you want to believe about yourself. And then you can build upon that. So that way you have that inner validation that you're continually putting into yourself and those beliefs about yourself and who you are. So that way the external validation becomes less important. Right. And it's just bonus. So what do you suggest for a high achieving women? Should they have a mood board? Should they have a list on their mirror? Should they do posting notes? Like what 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 would our audience take away and say, okay, I'm gonna work on my negative self-talk or negative image by doing what? I'm a big fan of the post-it notes. Okay. I use them and I love them because they're just small and you can put them anywhere. So like the bathroom mirror 
the kitchen, um, in the kitchen, like on the refrigerator, in your car at the office, like you can have different ones all over the place. And they're just small little reminders, because the more that you can put that message in front of you and you can practice it, the more it will become like familiar to you because whatever we tell our brain, it believes. And then we all have this thing called confirmation bias. So whatever we tell it, it'll be like, okay, that's what I'm going to look for in the world. So that way you're right. Because oh, our brain likes yes. to be right. Our brain likes to be right? It likes to be right. Yes. I like to be right all the time. That's uh-huh. what my kids tell me. <laughs> yes. So then you have to tell it the things you want it to be right about. And you can use, like, you can see this in examples of like the confirmation bias happens when like you want to buy a new car and you're like, I'm going to look for a blue van. And all of a sudden, all you see is blue vans everywhere. Okay. I've heard that. that. That is what happens. So it's the same thing with what we tell ourselves about us. If we say I'm really loved and cared for, our brain's going to start noticing the things that tell us we're loved and cared for. Even if it's not from like the people in our lives, it could be from the universe or God. Like mm-hmm. our brain will start giving us examples to be like, well, that person held the door open for me. And that's an example of being loved and cared for. So um, one thing that I've been, one thing that I've been doing since 2018 is keeping a gratitude journal where I write down like five to 10 things every morning that I'm grateful for. And that really helps. I noticed that like if I slack off of that, I feel like I have more negative moments because it kind of trains your brain to look for the gratitude in your day because it's kind of like taking note of it. And then the next day I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. I, I want to like write about that in my, in my gratitude journal. And so it kind of trains my mind to look for those like positive, you know, happy moments. The yeah. other thing that I do is a little tip for our listeners. I make my passwords, whatever affirmation that I want to focus on. So that that's way, a good one. When I log in, when I log into my computer every morning, it's something like, you know, positive or, you know, whatever it is that are a goal or something that I want to focus on. Um, so that way it's like constantly, you know, in your purview. Yeah. And sometimes I just, I skip the post-it notes and I just do a uh, lipstick on the mirror if I'm feeling sassy. <laughs> That works too. <laughs> I I think I saw something where someone, or maybe it was a book I read where someone said you have to talk to yourself, but it's so weird to do that into the mirror because you're so used to telling your friends or your parents or your family or your kids how awesome they are. But then when you look at yourself in the mirror, you start laughing or think this is so weird. So, like Me- to- so Mel Robbins oh, encourages people, the high five habit she encourages people when you see yourself in the mirror, because we're so programmed to like walk past the mirror and see ourselves and be like, ugh, like, well, my hair, like, ugh, my stomach. <sighs> she encourages you to look at it, to look at yourself in the mirror whenever you walk past it and give yourself a high five. And because what, like, what else is like such a universal, fun, encouraging, you know, movement than like the high five and like what that represents? And so you're doing it to yourself instead of like this <laughs> negative image of like, I don't like how my hair looks or I look fat today or, you know, whatever so it is. So you, do you do that, Carly? No, but I might start. <laughs> <laughs> and then Carly, back to your comment about gratitude journal. Do you do that in the morning or do that at the end of the day? No, I do that um, in the morning, recapping the day before. Okay. And it's funny because... So I do that and I also do 
goals that I want to accomplish and I write them as if I've already accomplished it. So instead of saying, I want to be a multimillionaire, I would say I am a multimillionaire. And I've been doing that as well since 2018. And it's so cool to see, to look back when I started and see all these goals that I've checked off now in 2023. Well, wow. it's because you're giving your brain what you want it to work on by mm-hmm. saying like, I am this, it's going to start saying like, let's move in that direction. Let's start looking for opportunities right. and your, your brain will be more aware and open to those opportunities than if you hadn't written that down. And there's like, there's some study, I think you're like, I don't know, five times, 10 times more likely to accomplish a goal if you write it like in, as if you've already accomplished that goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of professional and personal development work. <laughs> it shows. It's kind of like a hobby. Um, Can we change gears and talk about medication or, you know, instead of just talk therapy, I think there's been a, always a stigma. I know in my generation, no one wants to admit they're on medication. It's getting better now. If I joke about my, you know, Xanax or something, it it's sort of a joke, but a lot of people are on medication to help them. But we certainly didn't talk about it 15 years ago, and now people are talking about it. So are people overprescribed in your opinion? Are they underprescribed? What do you what are your thoughts on medication for things like anxiety? I think it just depends on the person and their practitioner. So for example, I'm not, I'm not a prescriber. I can't prescribe. I just do therapy, but I do talk to people about, you know, what's going on in their life and how they're coping with it. And if medication could be an option to talk with their prescribing physician. Um, I always like to give a lot of education around medications because, um, with anxiety, I'm just, you know, in Southwest Virginia, you know, when I started in 2008, a lot of people were being prescribed a lot of benzodiazepines, which is like Xanax and, um, Klonopin and those can are really fast acting and they also have a high uh, potential for addiction. Mm -hmm. And so they act on the brain similar to alcohol. So here in Southwest Virginia in around 2008, there were some providers who were giving them out like very, like three, there's prescribing them as three times a day. And so three times a day for one milligram of Ativan or uh, Xanax, um, there, the people became addicted. And so then, you know, coming off of that is very difficult because then how do they live without those benzodiazepines at that point? Um, they had to talk with their prescribing physician about doing a taper because you just can't stop those out of the blue Mm -hmm. either. You'll go into withdrawals and it's a medical, um, hazard of doing that. So I really try to give a lot of education around benzodiazepines because there are other medications for anxiety and other anxiolytics that do not work on the brain, like benzodiazepines and don't have that addiction potential. So like boost bars is a really popular option for people with anxiety. Um, it's taken as needed, or sometimes it's taken once a day. It depends on how it's prescribed. Um, and I'm, I wanted you to go back and just say, I'm, I'm not against people taking Xanax. It just needs to be as needed, a very small dose, um, because, you know, panic attacks do happen. That's why they were created to, to manage those panic attacks. Um, but it, not an everyday thing. It needs to be very monitored and cautious with it. So it has some value just not on a daily basis. 
But other prescribers might even look at like Zoloft or Wellbutrin or Lexapro. Those are other medications that can be used for anxiety, but there's a lot of different options out there. It just does take some, you know, having a prescribing provider who's knowledgeable about anxiety in women. And then also is willing to like make some adjustments if things aren't going or if there's side effects where they don't want to take the medication. Mm-hmm. I think the the most difficult thing and like my heart goes out to people who's doing this is the trial and error of finding the medication that works for you because they just impact everybody so differently. And it's not like, oh, this, this worked for my friend, you know, it's going to work for you. And, you know, some of the side effects and, you know, start as you ramp up the medication, you know, and it, it also can cause people anxiety in and of itself, you know, taking this new medication. And so, for some people, I know some people who have gotten prescriptions and they just sit with it for months until they feel comfortable taking it because it's this new thing that they're scared of the side effects and they're scared how they're going to react to it. I have talked openly about being, I wouldn't say addicted, but feeling like I could not survive if I didn't have a Xanax and I would only take them at night so I could fall asleep or relax enough my brain to fall asleep. I'm a worrier by by nature. And I started to, I was like realizing I couldn't do this forever. And even my prescriber said, you know, he is my OBGYN and I love him, but he was like, you know, Jane, you shouldn't be taking these every day. Mm-hmm. You don't have a situation in your life that requires them. You're happily married. You've got kids, you work, you know, it's nothing tragic going on. But, and I also am regulated. So they look at everything I prescribe and they're, and they're more, they regulate Xanax more than the Ambien, which I think is interesting, mm-hmm. but I weaned myself off of it eventually, but it took a year of me like chipping away. And even if like I would go to bed and I couldn't fall asleep within an hour, I would have, I would have a panic attack that I will never sleep tonight. And then tomorrow I won't be able to give the presentation and, you know, and it will, and I would like have a little piece and I would go, Okay. It was like a freaking, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really helping me, but it was like a placebo that I yeah. needed that little chip of the Xanax to make me feel like I could relax. Right. And it, it's a lot of psychological addiction. It's, it's usually what it comes down to if it's not a physical dependence. Yeah. Yeah. It's it really, crazy. In those moments when you're feeling like overwhelming anxiety, it, it can be really helpful just to write what the trigger is. And then the, the thoughts that come with it. So the triggering situation was, I can't fall asleep. And then the thought is like, I'm never going to be able to fall asleep and I'm going to fail at this presentation. And then it really like writing down what the emotions are with it. And then how you can cope with this. Like in, you can kind of reflect on your past experiences. You've probably pulled all nighters with, whether with kids or without kids. And then went the next day and did something like a presentation on absolutely no sleep and lots of caffeine. In my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you still did it. Yeah. And you probably could do it again if you had to, right? Yeah. yeah if you true. absolutely had to, you would do it. You would get it done because it's, that's the type of person you are. Yeah. Type slay. But then like we talked about earlier, I mean, type slay, but I always say well, with help from my friends, Ambien and Xanax, but that's not really type. I mean, I guess it could be type slay, but I felt like it was time for me to give up those, that habit. Cause I, oh, yeah. And those are necessary in in times of trouble and in times of of real stress, but not as your everyday habit. And back not only to dr- to drugs or pharmaceuticals, but alcohol. 
I know mm-hmm. women that drink a glass or two or three of wine every night in order to relax. And um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, if they feel like they can't go without it, then that's an addiction. Yeah. And and so, and really like, do we want to have to have alcohol in order to relax? Like, is that really the healthiest thing? No. And or, also for, if you get to be my age 50, I don't really feel like it helps me. It actually hurts me. I end up, if I have one glass of wine, I wake up at two 30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's depressed me. And then my mind is awakened. So I don't really drink much at all anymore. Just it's- isn't. It's kind of funny. I've never seen alcohol as a way to relax. Like it, it doesn't really relax me. Um, you go whoop whoop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm more of like a bubble bath. Like I love bubble baths, and so like I have found like healthier ways to like cope with my. Yeah, I I uh, run a bubble bath, and oh, then God. I have an audience. You know, all the animals are in there. The cats are up on the sitting up there. <laughs> you know, about to fall right in and it, and it becomes not relaxing really quickly. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think, but like, also I will say there is absolutely no shame in needing medication and needing a Xanax, needing Ambien. You know, I think there's different phases of your life that you're going to go through where certain things may work better for you than others. And mm-hmm. I do think that the younger generation, you know, younger millennials, Gen Z, I see a lot more conversations happening on social media about mental health and also about mental health, um, you know, taking medication to support your mental health. Um, I'll, you know, like hashtag like Lexapro girlies on TikTok, you know, is a thing. And there's all these followers and all these comments. It's like, yes, I'm a Lexapro girly, like making it like trying to make it like a cute, you know, like a little cute thing instead of like a shameful thing. And I do feel like, you know, at at one point in my life when I was on, um, I was on Lexapro, it, I felt like ashamed. I felt like, oh my gosh, why do I have to take medication to be normal? And I felt ashamed. And so I love that as society, we're moving in a, in a totally opposite direction where people are open about, you know, taking medication and normalizing it so much more. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely think that, that normalizing it and making it okay to talk about and reducing the stigma is incredibly important. And I just hope we come together as a society to eventually raise our children in a way that we don't have to, um, feel these, like these excessive anxieties or excessive depression or depression, anxiety is a part of life. Sadness is a part of life. Grief is a part of life. And those hard times are a part of life. And I think a lot of us have missed out on the community and the support that we needed in childhood that led us to this place of experiencing the overwhelming anxiety and overwhelming depression or suicidal thoughts and getting to that point of feeling really bad. So I think there can be a lot of prevention um, for future generations, but until we get to that point, we need to, you know, normalize the the treatment that we have available right now. Carly, back to your comment about the TikTok. I have a 16 year old daughter. And so it, it almost makes me a little nervous that if you're having a TikTok about Lexapro girlies, does that mean that 
maybe it's going to be more appealing to the young women to go on Lexapro, even if they don't need to. Does that, I mean, I, I want to normalize mental health, but I also know that teenage want, girls like, likes to copy. They like to copy. Right. Well, you don't want people like, that's a huge thing. You know, we see right now with TikTok as therapists is that there's a lot of self-diagnosing. They'd be like, well, I saw this one TikTok and I saw this other thing. And then it can be super helpful um, when you're getting the right information from the qualified person. Um, but sometimes that information is not accurate on TikTok either. And so I, th- I think it's a balance between like normalizing getting information out there, but then also saying like, but don't like self-diagnose and don't say that you're going to need this certain medication just because your friend's taking it. Yeah. And you're seeing more and more of the multi-generational coming in to see you. And did that ramp up uh, astronomically during COVID? Do, are you booked fully? I mean, do you, you have more clients than you know what to do with? And do you think that's a symptom of COVID or of what happened to us? Or do you think it's because people are just more aware of mental health and they're more accepting? They're willing to have a therapist as like another tool in their toolkit. Like Carly talks about, you know, you go to see the doctor every year for a, or if you were something was broken, you'd go see the doctor. So why wouldn't you go and talk to a therapist? Mm-hmm. I think, um, post COVID, a lot more people are seeking mental health services. And I think that COVID just took off like the mask or the veil that things were wrong. Um, I think because when COVID happened, all the distractions stopped, like it is harder to get alcohol. It's harder to get food. It's harder to get necessities. It's harder to get distractions of movies and going out and socializing, like all those distractions were removed and we just had to sit with ourselves at home. And that was a very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it opened a lot of people's eyes up to being like, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> like I have to sit with myself and like I can't just keep doing things. Um that was I think that's a very hard thing to do. And I think and also it was very traumatic because everything changed all in one day. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize that it was a um it was a huge trauma for a lot of us. I don't know who, it, whether they realize it or not, everyone experienced that trauma. It was a community trauma. Yeah. And, and I, t- I talked about it on our last episode. I mean, like what, like for people who have, you know, hypochondria and health anxiety and agoraphobia and, you know, all these things, like I cannot think of a worse hellscape than the pandemic and living through COVID-19. I mean, like, seriously, it is, oh my gosh. Like I look back on it and I'm like, wow, you know, I didn't think that I was doing, I didn't think that I was doing bad during COVID. And now that I'm kind of out on the other side, I look back and I'm like, whew, that was rough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was very difficult, difficult for people with obsessive compulsive disorder as well. Um, Because I think that was a lot of people have a germ phobia associated mm-hmm. with that too. And so mm-hmm. um, it led to a lot of people isolating even more. So, and being very careful with things and, and their symptoms getting worse and their mental health declining. So it had a huge impact. Yeah. It and it's kind of interesting to look back and, and see like, Oh, that's how I coped. Yeah. And social anxiety too. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you're told you have to stay inside when you do go out, stay six feet away from people. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like, do I even want to leave my house? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or when anyone sneezed or coughed, you're like, Oh, we're going down. I mean, yeah. 
then that's that catastrophizing that thought of like everything's it's done it's the worst case scenario yeah (laughs) yeah the only other thing i I would say was um are there any other tips melissa that you would want to touch on for high achieving women you know who to help them live alongside their anxiety I think the self-care, the self-compassionate self-talk, using coping skills like journaling, exercise, doing things you enjoy, um, learning meditation, mindfulness is is incredibly important. And then um, really setting healthy boundaries, saying no to things because you can't do everything. And so you really have to prioritize what's important. Underline that, Jane, and and put an exclamation point after it. Yeah. And then therapy, consider therapy. Cause then with therapy, you can explore like the deeper root causes behind the anxiety and then really start to identify and reframe those negative thoughts associated with the anxiety. Yeah. I, my husband always jokes, like if I sign up for one more thing, I, I have to give up something like there's no more adding to the plate. So I'll, I'll come home and say, I said, no, someone asked me to be on a committee and you'll be so proud of me. I said, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's something else that comes up and I kind of sneak it in and I'm like, well, I am taking this other thing on. Like, I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're opposites because I'm I'm saying yes to more things, you know, to get me outside of my comfort zone and Jane saying no to more things. Well, I think there's always a season of yes and there's a season of no. Yeah. I agree. Well, I think those are great tips. Jane, did you have any other questions? guess I would like to know if you would be interested in coming back maybe quarterly. If people send us topics or questions, maybe we could have a reoccurring guest. I don't want to take up too much of your time and, and monopolize your time, but I would. I do think there's a bigger cloud of of need within our high high achieving female community that you would be. It'd be really helpful or you know strategic to have someone that's that's a professional. Yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to. Just let me know when and what you all want me to talk about. I'd be happy to. Okay. Awesome. Right, Thank bye. you so much. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to be on. Um, yeah, seriously. I think this is so valuable. And, you know, anything that we can do to provide our listeners with, you know, professional high quality resources, you know, I think is awesome. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, go type slay. We're so excited to bring you new episodes, special guests, and share real-life advice to help you slay it.